We are going to be reading from Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah Claire, for reading that for us, even in a pinch. You're amazing. Um, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Providencia, and uh, it's an honor to be with you tonight. Uh, I want to start this evening with uh, a poem. It's called, What is a Promise? What is a promise? Is it the words uttered? My word is my bond. Better than a handshake, take this word. Take it to the bank. Is your yes, yes? Is your no, no? A promise isn't the words. It can't be. I forget the words. Their echo fades. Their force weakens. And they've been broken so many times, the pieces are no longer like a puzzle. They are ashes, and I can't feel their weight anymore. Unless you remember, unless you return, unless you are faithful, unless you hold on, then the promise lifts me. Then it drives me to the dirt and reminds me where I came from a God secretly intoxicated by dirt and water, breathing it in and out, breathing out life connected to the dirt and washed by the water. What is a promise? It isn't until it's kept. This is my perspective on promises. I'm bad at promises, and there's nothing like having kids to show you just how bad you are at promises. Just on Monday night this week, it was after bedtime, and Owen came out of his room, and I sent him back and said, I'll come check on you in a minute. If you're a parent, you've used this phrase, in a minute, lots and lots of times. After about five, he came back out again looking all sad. You said one minute. Promises are one of those things that we like to find in the scriptures more often than they actually occur. The fear of the Lord leads to life. 
Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Proverbs 19.23 There are a lot of our sisters and brothers around the world who would testify to the trouble they've received as a result of fearing the Lord. Or how does someone in the Bahamas, whose home and livelihood were destroyed by Hurricane Dorian, claim Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm. I think our default reading of Scripture too often expects promises. But here in Genesis 9, we do have one of God's promises. I establish my covenant with you and your descendants and every living creature, God says to Noah. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. This covenant language is how Scripture talks about promises. But there's a difference between covenants and promises. With promises, there is one who makes the promise and one who receives the promise. With covenants, both parties are supposed to be involved in the making and the receiving. Covenants are often two-way streets. Both parties make the covenant and both parties are meant to keep the covenant. But God doesn't always work in this way. Sometimes God covenants in the way that we think about promises. Like here in Genesis 9, And three chapters later than this, in Genesis 12 with Abraham, God covenants, God keeps the covenant, and we miss the point. Those are my three things tonight. God covenants, God keeps the covenant, and we miss the point. This is the first major covenant that we have in the Bible. After this, God makes covenants with Abraham, as I mentioned, and then with his son Isaac, and then again with his grandson Jacob, who we come to know as Israel. And then God makes a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. That includes the Ten Commandments. Then God later makes a covenant with David, the king. And then finally through Jesus, a covenant sealed in blood, secured in the resurrection. Each of these covenants is related, but each one is also distinct. The distinctives of this covenant in Genesis chapter 9 are who receives the covenant and what it says about God that God initiates this covenant. So who's the second party with God in this covenant? In every other covenant, there are only humans involved. But here in Genesis 9, God covenants with Noah and with his descendants, and with all living creatures on the earth. Robert Alter translates the covenantal promise like this. And God said, I, I am about to establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you. And it's almost as as if this conversation God is having is a conversation with God's self. The narrator indicates to us that God is speaking to Noah, but this isn't a dialogue, it's a monologue. And it's interspersed with the recurrence of this phrase, and God said. And God said in verse 8, and then again in verse 12, God said, and again in verse 17, God said. 
And these are superfluous to God's actual speech. The whole thing is God talking. So why interrupt the monologue with these reminders that it's God who is speaking? Robert Alter observes that this is a common formula in biblical narrative. And it occurs when the speech of one person is misunderstood or even resisted by the other. So the repetition of the phrase, and -and so-and-so said, is a rephrasing or a restating for the purpose of clarifying or defending the initial speech. So here, God plainly states at the beginning of this speech, this is the promise. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. But it's as if Noah, fresh off the trauma of being bashed by the waters of the flood, needs a further sign. So the narrator reintroduces God, and God said, this is the sign of the promise, the rainbow. And then, as if Noah's still a little bit skeptical, a third iteration of the formula introduces the summary statement of the whole covenant. And God said to Noah, just to cover all the bases, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on earth. But the fact that Noah is a passive participant in this dialogue also indicates that this is what we call a unilateral covenant as opposed to a bilateral covenant. The covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses and the people of Israel and the Ten Commandments, it's a bilateral covenant, a two-way covenant covenant. There are stipulations for God to uphold, and there are stipulations for Israel to uphold. But here in Genesis 9, we have a unilateral covenant. God covenants. God puts stipulations on God's self, and there are no stipulations put on Noah or his descendants or creation. In fact, God still initiates this covenant despite the reality that human brokenness and chaos will once again rise like the tide of a flood. God has shifted, relented, even forgiven. And the result of that shift is this covenant. It is God who covenants. God who promises, and God covenants with all of creation. This moment of shifting, the moment of relenting, of forgiveness, of covenant, happens around the idea of remembering. So the second point, God keeps the covenant, is intimately attached to the idea that God remembers. It happens first in Genesis chapter 8, one chapter earlier than our reading. In the middle of the flood story, after the rain has ceased, but the waters still rage outside the ark. The waters still cover the earth. In the imagery of the ancient peoples, chaos reigns as long as the waters rage. And then chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. And all the living creatures that were with him in the ark. 
and the waters immediately begin to recede. Chapter 8, verse 2. And then it happens again in our passage in chapter 9, in the explanation of the rainbow as a sign of the covenant. It turns out in our passage, in this explanation about the rainbow, that the rainbow is more than just a token of the covenant. It's more than just a sign or a visible proof to Noah and his descendants. It is that, but it's also a memory device for God. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, then I will remember my covenant, says God. I can't say it any better than Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. The gospel of this God is that he remembers. The gospel of this God is that he remembers. The only thing the waters of chaos and death do not cut through, though they cut through everything else, is the commitment of God to creation. God remembers. And when God remembers, God relents, forgives, and rescues. The Israelites know this about God. They know how the memory of God works. And so the language of remembrance gets picked up all over the place. It's in one of our other lectionary readings for today from the Psalms. Psalm 25 verses 6 and 7 says, Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. So when we remember, as we do in a weekly rhythm of confession in our services, as we will do daily during these 40 days of Lent, when we remember, we often find guilt and shame and brokenness in our memory. But when God remembers... God remembers the covenant that God established between himself and all living creatures. God remembering means grace for creation. This is uh, admittedly not an easy passage to preach on. And it's mostly because this flood story from Genesis chapter 6 to Genesis 9 is an adventure in missing the point for us as modern interpreters. We miss the point in several ways, but first, we tend to ask the wrong questions. We want to ask the question of meteorology. It rained for how long? And the waters got how high? Or we want to ask the question of geography. Was this a localized flood or a globalized flood? And is a globalized flood even a thing? We want to ask the question of zoology. Two of every single creature? How did Noah count the amoebas or the bees? It's supposed to be funny. There are seven pairs of a bunch of animals, and then there is one pair of some other animals. And are you sure that all of these creatures would have fit on the ark? And this leads us to the question of engineering. The ark was how big, and how did Noah go about building it? 
Or we want to ask the question of humanity. Did no one else think to build a boat? It rained for a long time. No one else built a boat? Or we ask the question of physics and optics. Was this the first rainbow? Was it exactly the same as the rainbow that I saw driving down the road the other day? What kind of light refraction are we talking about? All these questions might be interesting. Some might be more interesting than others, but I think they're all adventures in missing the point. I think the right question is the question of theology. What do we learn of God through this story? In this story, we find a God who cannot and will not tolerate human depravity. We find a God willing to start over. We find a God who raises up the flood. We find a God who allows death and destruction to sweep across the earth until Genesis 7.23, there is left only Noah. And then the very next verse, we find a God who remembers. And it is this remembering and the fact that God is a God who remembers that changes the situation for the whole world. Because remembering puts God in a covenantal posture. The God who remembers is the God who promises. And the God who promises says never again. But secondly, we miss the point by individualizing and self-centering this story. We make the story about us. Either us as individuals or us as humanity. Now the us as individuals kind of missing the point is how we Americans always miss the point. But that's another sermon for another time. Even when we see humanity collectively at the center of this story, we miss the point. Remember, this covenant that God establishes is with all life on earth. Yes, that includes humanity, but it also includes every animal and every plant. It includes the waters and the soil. As theologian Miguel de la Torre puts it, the well-being of humans will from now on be intertwined with the well-being of the entire planet and all forms of life it contains. So let's back up one more time to Genesis chapter 8 to try to catch this point. After God remembers Noah and the waters of the flood begin to recede and Noah then sends out a dove, and he and his family and all the creatures who are in the ark leave the ark. Noah builds an altar and worships. He sacrifices one of the creatures. And then the text tells us that when God smelled the fragrance of the offering, God said in his heart, wait, God said in his heart? Genesis 8.21 the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. This is the first sign of God's shifting, God's relenting, God's changing posture. And it's articulated as the thoughts of God's own heart. 
This statement is not made to Noah or anyone else in the world of the narrative. This statement is God determining within God's self, I will never again damn the soil on humankind's score. It's Robert Alter's translation. God cares about the soil. A God secretly intoxicated by dirt and water weds us to the rest of creation and then promises, I will not destroy. The result is the removal of the fear of destruction as punishment. Because of this covenant, Noah and all his descendants to all generations cannot look upon natural catastrophe as punishment for sin. Our God who cares about the soil cares about us and promises never again. Even though we will insist on ignoring our connection to creation. Seeing ourselves as the only important actor in this covenant with God. Even though this severing of our relationship to creation will lead to a deteriorating quality of air in our cities, rising ocean levels from melting glaciers, increasing intensity of natural disasters, even though humanity's desire for profit and convenience will lead to the children of Flint, Michigan being without clean water for years will lead to the destruction of natural beauty for oil pipelines and tourism, will lead to the destruction of rainforests to satisfy our burger addictions, even though our God cares about the soil and remembers and promises never again. So what is a promise? For God, it is a letting go of destruction as a means of punishment and taking hold of the covenant relationship once more. For God, it is a willingness to keep holding on to us and on to creation as partners in building toward the kingdom. For God, the promise is kept in presence. Finally and ultimately embodied in Jesus, who will also remember, who will return, who is faithful and holding on for the consummation of the new creation where the river of life flows from his throne and the tree of life bears its fruit and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any damnation For the curse on humanity and on creation will finally and fully and forever be lifted. That's a promise kept. Let's pray.